Well, good morning. My name is Janice Wood. I am so glad to be with you this morning. Our pastor is um, out visiting one of the churches that is in his care. He is an, an area pastor leader, and so he watches over a few places, and he's out visiting one of those churches this morning. So I get to share with you this morning um, on our current series that we're in. But before we do that, can I just reiterate what... Um, Wow, how great the food pantry thing is going. Thank you to everyone who showed up this Saturday and helped us organize the food that has already brought in, been brought in, and uh, this coming Saturday will be the training day. So if you're interested in helping out, maybe you didn't come last week, but you want to be someone who works in the food pantry uh, periodically, this weekend is when you come and kind of learn the system. Learn, uh, you know, hear a little bit about what we are going to be doing and how we're going to be loving Richmond. Um, and as we continue that on, and, and the food drive opportunity will, will be there consistently. You can continue to bring food in. But next week, we are going to be rolling out a new initiative for us to be able to love Richmond called the Serving Tree. Now, we're, you'll hear more and you'll see more about this in the days and weeks to come, but uh, just know that there are ways that we can love Richmond corporately through our effort together, and there are ways that we can love Richmond individually. And so, if you've been around the vineyard for a long time, this is reminiscent of Power Love days um, when we had some scratch-off cards. It won't be exactly that, but uh, come next week ready to understand what that's going to be all about. All right, are you ready to get into the Word this morning? We have been working out of the book of John and will be all the way up to Easter. I love that rhythm. I don't know about you, but for the past several years of my Christian walk, I like to spend the weeks ahead of Easter just digging into Jesus' life. That's when I really want to just see what's going on and remember again uh, exactly the, you know, the trajectory of what was going on. So we are in the book of John, chapter 3. You can follow along on the screen, your devices, your phones, your Bibles whatever implements that you have handy. Are you ready? John 3, 1 through 21. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus said, asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their, mother, their mother's womb to be born. He might be a little bit of a literalist. Do I have any of you in the room? You know what I mean? You take the word at face value and, and he's a little stuck. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound and you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we have seen, and still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but the people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now, let's consider the landscape a little bit before we uh, get into this uh, really deeply. Um, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he is a member of the Jewish ruling council, it says. Now, what does that mean? It means that he is holding a position of authority. He is holding a religious position of authority, a public position of authority. Now, politically, the Jews are under occupation. The Romans own them right? They're not slaves, but they, but they are governed by Rome. Um, however, the Romans allowed them to rule their own religion, right? The, govern, the governor, that's, now they weren't permitted to do anything they wanted, right? So when they want to kill Jesus, they have to go to the Roman authorities and get permission to do that. But in turn, so they can't just whack people anytime they want to whack them. But they, they are definitely in a position of calling the shots about how their religion is going to be practiced. And it is a position of authority. I don't know that it was democratically voted in, but I would suggest that Nicodemus is someone whose power could be diminished if he didn't play with the rules, if he didn't do things the way he was supposed to do them, that sort of thing, right? So he is a, in a position of religious authority. He is, and he's on like the supreme court of the religious authority, right? If you can put it in those terms. He is studied. He has a religious degree if there was one given out in the day, which there probably wasn't, but he is of the most intellectual people that are there. Um, we um, also see, and this is one of the things that I love about John, including him. Do you know that he's, John's the only one that includes, includes Nicodemus, the other Gospels don't mention him by name, but he's mentioned three times in the book of John. And as we've, we've been learning, John includes the things he includes in his Gospel for a reason. And he includes them, he includes Nicodemus in three different stages of seeking. See, I always struggle with, with titles for a message, but if you want a title this morning, you might call this the night seeker. Right? Because I think Nicodemus is someone who is a seeker. And at this particular stage of the game, he's coming to Jesus. He's not a believer yet. He's saying, hey, we know, but, mm, and he's got some things that he does. And, and Jesus is like, you know, you don't even believe me yet. You still don't believe. So he doesn't believe yet. He's going to show up again in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, he actually defends Jesus a little bit. The Pharisees have been fussing about Jesus and the power and authority and, and how many people are clamoring to him. And they're like, listen, what are we going to do with him and Nicodemus pipes up and says well hey wait a minute you know maybe we should hear this guy out before we just write him off he's not fully you know supporting Jesus but he's but he's doing that much and then finally he shows up after Jesus crucifixion right after Jesus is dead he and Joseph of Arimathea show up and ask for Jesus body so that they can take him and be buried in a special tomb. And Nicodemus shows up with 75 pounds of burial spices. Dude, that's a load, right? That's a lot of spices, which in, even for the time, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's a five-pound job or whatever, but 75 pounds indicates a little bit of wealth, that he has the money, he has the means, and it's a very public statement he's making. I'm with this man, and I'm going to bury him. Right? So he may come at night, he may be a night seeker, but he, be, he becomes a day proclaimer. 
at the end of this story, right? So we have John showing us this, this landscape of who Nicodemus is as he tells the story. Here's another thing I noticed before we go much further. There are no disciples nearby, at least not that we hear. Now, now maybe, maybe they're eavesdropping. Maybe they're hanging around the edges of the door and they're listening in. I don't really, I don't, you know, when I was a child, I was kind of known for eavesdropping. I was the youngest in my family by five years, and my family had extraordinary conversations after they sent me to bed. I know this because I listened, right? I, I had to go to bed upstairs, and I sat at the top of the stairs, and every now and then my brother or sister would come around and go, hey, she's listening, and I'd get in trouble for that. But <clears throat> whatever, I, and, you know, they sent me to bed, but, but let me, and I'm not, uh, please, I'm not telling you to eavesdrop, children, adults. I'm not telling you to do that, but I am telling you that what I learned by eavesdropping was nothing salacious. It was so instructive. I listened to my parents minister to the young people who came just to hang out at my folks' house. And I heard them have discussions about faith and, and, you know, and things that were beyond my understanding, but it was instructive to me to hear how my parents entertained the people that were there and the conversations that they had, even when I was a child. I don't know if the disciples are hanging out around the corner, and that's how we know this or not, or if they are dead asleep. My guess is they're dead asleep because that's, they have a little struggle with the sleep thing, right? We, they fall asleep in the garden. So I'm, uh, that's, my money's on that. And if they are asleep, then the only way John gets this information is if Jesus relayed the whole conversation to him or Nicodemus relayed the whole conversation to him. That's how they know this. Whatever the case, it was significant enough for John to include in the Gospels and becomes one of the keystone passages of Scripture that Christianity rides on today when we share the Gospel with other people. So, he's not a news reporter seeking information. Nicodemus isn't that. If he had been on an assignment, he would have shown up during the day and done his bit. He shows up at night instead. I think it's because he's a seeker. As I was looking into this uh, scripture this time, I really felt like the Holy Spirit told me to kind of cue in on Nicodemus' side, to, to cue in on the questions that Nicodemus is putting out there. So first of all, number one, the first thing that Nicodemus says is, we know, we know that you have come from God. You are a teacher who comes from God because of the miracles and the signs that you've been doing. Now, see, sometimes people want to say, oh, look at all the miracles and signs. Jesus wants everybody to get well. Jesus wants everybody to be healed. Not everybody got healed. You know what the signs did beyond healing people? It let people know who he was and where he came from. It was a proof text of who he was. It was evidence of who he was. That's part of the whole process. And people getting healed and people getting better is kind of like collateral damage or benefit to the whole thing. Because that's how Nicodemus knows it. He's like, listen, if you can do this, then you must be this. It's algebraic. We know, based on this, that you must be from God. But there's got to be more. I'm missing something, you know? I'm missing a few pieces of the puzzle here, and I'm coming, and I'm wanting to know that, and so I'm following the breadcrumbs. I really wanted to have a, um, a, an object illustration for you this morning. I was going to bring breadcrumbs, and I was going to sprinkle them along the stage, and then I began to worry about you know, first service having breadcrumbs and then me tramping them into the carpet and, you know, anyway. So imagine, if you will, that we have breadcrumbs, right? Hansel and Gretel, does anybody know what I'm talking about? 
classic literature, Aesop's fable. Right, you follow breadcrumbs to get to something. I am convinced that Nicodemus is following breadcrumbs. Right? Every little bit, every little healing takes him a little further down this path. He's trying to go the right way, as our sermon series talks about, but he's missing some things. He's missing out on a little bit. Here's my question for us this morning. What are the breadcrumbs we're following in the middle of the night? What are the breadcrumbs that we're following, and where does it take us in the middle of the night? Where does your mind and the Internet lead you? The Internet's a pretty good breadcrumb trail, isn't it? And it now knows what you're thinking, you know? You thought two seconds about forks, and now you have 40 million forks, right? You're following a breadcrumb trail that it's laying out in front of you. Where does your mind and internet take you? Where do you end up when you are restless and can't make sense of stuff, when you know you're missing something? Where do you go to find answers for your uncertainties, comfort for your heart, distractions for your anxiety, right? See, Nick is, is looking for more, than, more head knowledge. That's what he thinks he needs. If I could just get a little more information, I can put this whole thing together and I can understand it. And Jesus doesn't give him that. He wants more head knowledge and he doesn't get that. Instead, he gets some weird answer about being born again. And Nick is like, how? How does that happen? This stuff doesn't compute, right? Jesus responds about talking about the kingdom. There is more than it involves a rebirth. See, no one can see it unless they are born again. No one can enter it unless they are born of the water and the Spirit. Because when we give up on our sin and when we are baptized, we receive the Holy Spirit. But here's the tough part. The Holy Spirit cannot be managed. And he's really tough to wrap your intellectual mind around. Right? He is just not to be managed. And, and Jesus makes the, 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 you know, uh, uh, the example of the wind. He, he's making that analogy. It's like the wind. I have a cousin who has a, a son, so I'm not sure what that is. I call him my cousin nephew, but he's not really either one of those things. Uh, so once removed, something or other. But anyway, he studied meteorology. And uh, I love this kid. He studied meteorology, and he's this fabulous uh, forecaster. He works by contract for the, for the state of Virginia. And so he's always telling everybody what's happening in Virginia. And sometimes I'm like, Hans, we're really close to Virginia. What's happening over here? You know what I mean? And he'll maybe give me a heads up because it's hitting us before it hits them. And, and I love that. But you know what he's not doing? He's not making weather. He's forecasting it. He's making a prediction based on patterns. He's saying, because when the wind is over here in Kentucky, it's pretty likely going to hit Virginia. It's, if, if it's here, it's probably going to track this way. No guarantees, and I can't make it happen, but this is maybe what it's going to do. See, he can't make wind. I mean, you can turn a fan on if you want, but you cannot generate weather. You cannot generate the wind that comes from God. But here's what you can do. You can block it. You can put up a shield. You can put yourself in a shelter. You can do what you can to escape the effects of the wind. And folks, that's what many of us do in terms of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's a little, it's a little freaky sometimes. So we just kind of block it out. You know what I mean? We can't control it, but we can hide from it or quench it. And so, and I'm telling you, as the pastor is pressing in, we're going to see and allow the Holy Spirit to do some things because I'll tell you this, he can be trusted. 
The Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. If God can be trusted, Jesus can be trusted, the Holy Spirit can be trusted. He's not going to hurt us. It's going to be all right. All right? Finally, Nicodemus says, how can this be? And I love it when Jesus gets a little bit sarcastic. And he says, dude, you're the teacher. (laughs) You should know this stuff. What do you mean, how can this be? Why don't you know this stuff? Have you ever felt like you just, you know, felt like you should be a little further along than you are in something? And you're kind of embarrassed by that. You're like, come on, shouldn't I be further along this? Shouldn't I know more about this? Why does it always feel like I'm faking my way through it? Why do I feel like I'm just multiple guessing my way through the ACTs? Shouldn't I know a little bit more than I know? I think that that's where Nicodemus is sitting. But if we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen and still don't believe, then clearly the gospel message is not a matter of knowledge. It is not a matter of eyewitness. It is not a matter of study. And it is not even a matter of authority. It is none of those things. It's about belief. It is a matter of belief. The word believe shows up six times in this little passage. Six times. Actually, I think seven in the whole chapter, parts that I didn't read this morning. But six times. When, when the scripture repeats something many times, that's the point. It's almost always the point. Jesus repeats things that are important. John is repeating things that are important. Belief is the important thing because God gave his only son that we would not know that we would believe, that we would believe to save us from condemnation. This is the purpose of John's entire letter, his entire letter or this entire book, and you will find it in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and it says this, Jesus performed many, many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not included in this book. Guys, I didn't have time. I, I couldn't include them all. These are like the top, this is the top 30, right? I don't have time to put the rest in there. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. So, what about this account convinces you? If his entire um, book, his entire treatise is about us understanding and believing, why would he include an account that Nicodemus, this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, what is it about it that makes it believable. What is it about it that makes it a proof text? What would make us a believer because of this? And I've got three things. Number one, even smart people, even smart seekers need to believe. Even smart seekers need to believe. There is no accelerated reader class with Jesus, okay? Smart folks have zero advantage in understanding the gospel. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to suggest that they might even have a disadvantage (laughs) because smart people tend to overthink stuff. They They tend to overthink it in the wrong way. So why does John include this? Because I think he's saying even smart people can't figure it out. They still have to come to a point of belief. See, last week we looked at the water turning into wine and the first people who have access to a miracle of Jesus, the first people who are impacted by that are the servants. 
the servant class. We're not even talking disciples. Disciples are guests. Disciples are, in my mind, a little higher than the servants in that most of them were entrepreneurs. You know, these fishermen are running their own books. They're running their own business. And then you have, of course, the wealthy people in that stratosphere. And then you have servants who are doing the servant work. They're doing the hourly wage kind of thing, right? And they're the people who learned about the miracles first. And now John contrasts that by giving us this very scholarly, learned person who comes along, who's the biggest and the brightest and the best, and he still can't connect all the dots. He still can't put it all together. He can't follow the breadcrumbs and end up following Jesus, end up believing in Jesus. He wasn't going the right way. Because if he was... If by your smarts you could understand the gospel better, if by being intelligent you could come to faith faster and better, you'd have a leg up. How horrible would that be? See, Christianity isn't a wordle where you get enough hints and it'll get you there. And you know who I'm talking to in the room. You know who you are. Right? If you don't understand that reference, just roll on. Just keep scrolling. Right? But if you know who you are, it's not a place where you get six hints and then you're in. It's not a place like that. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 19. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. It isn't a simple deduction from a good equation. The right amount of data will not compute to you surrendering your life to Jesus and appreciating the sacrifice of his son on the cross. It won't get you there. As a matter of fact, it's, um, it says this, and Jesus says it this way in the book of Matthew. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Come as a child. You don't have to be able to articulate absolutely everything. So many of us feel, it feels small, like we can't share the gospel with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers because we don't know enough and somebody's going to stump us with a big question. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to know that. You can come as a child. I absolutely love meeting with children who are interested in baptism. And it's one of the things that I get to do as part of this, this job and this role. Last week we uh, had baptisms on Pulse Night, and uh, one of them involved a 10-year-old, and it was one of many who came into my office, I mean, without a parent, ready to go. Now, I take this so seriously because I really resist the idea that we're going to dunk some kids in water to make the parents happy. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to do that. I want to make sure that these kids are doing this on their own and they care enough to seek it out on their own and that they understand what baptism means and they aren't just following the, you know, the breadcrumb they're supposed to follow. I want to make sure they get it right. But yet at the other, on the other hand, what 10, 11, 12-year-old can articulate the faith really well and say, you know, if I ask you why you got baptized, some of you'd be going, you, you know what I mean? And I'm asking a kid, why do you want to be baptized? And sometimes they, they don't really get it. They don't really understand. But guess what? I don't send them out the door and go, well, you know what? Come back in, in three months when you've got it figured out. I get to tell them. I get to tell them how to follow Jesus. I get to tell them how you surrender to Jesus. I get to tell them that whole thing. And then I just say, so is that what you would like to do today? And, and sometimes they go, Yeah. That's what I want. And I get to lead little children through that prayer of repentance and absolutely believing because they're already following the path. They're getting closer to God. But then they, they go through those steps, and I'm telling you, there's nothing like it. And they can't always explain it. 
A few years ago, I met with a, a young girl who was uh, going through that, and she did not understand, and I explained it to her, and she wanted to pray the prayer, but she prayed it after me, and then we get done, and I'm kind of like, did I coerce her into that? I don't know if I did that, Maria, I don't know, and she had a funny look on her face, and I said, I said, uh, how you doing? And she goes, it just hurts right here. And I thought, yeah, it does. <laughs> her heart was just burning, and physically she was feeling it. Physically she was feeling the effects of I understand now and I've come to Jesus. And I'm telling you what, that 10-year-old that we baptized on uh, last Sunday night, she stepped into that tank and her little lip was trembling and her eyes were welling up with tears and it was not fear. It was not embarrassment. It was nothing but understanding the gravity of what she was doing and it was precious, precious. That's what we're doing here, folks. You don't have to be smart. You come as a child. You come as a child and you understand there's nothing like it. Now, hear me. It doesn't mean that we don't study to show ourselves approved. It doesn't mean that we just ride along. I don't know anything. I don't care to know anything. I'm never going to learn anything more. No, we're going to study to show ourselves approved. We are going to seek Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's just that intelligence is not a cheat code. It's not going to get you anywhere. You can't buy your way in. You can't think your way into the kingdom. You must believe and repent your way into the kingdom. Not just heaven, but the kingdom that Jesus said was here right now and the one that was to come. Matthew 4, 14, 4, 17, my bad. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. See, Nicodemus wanted an intellectual explanation to satisfy his mind, and Jesus gave him a heart answer. Jesus gave him a heart answer. Number two, the second thing I think we can deduce from this is that we can seek him in the dark of night. I'm sorry that's so simple, but it really hit me. We can seek him in the dark of night. See, Nicodemus isn't just smart. He seeks Jesus at night, so I call him a secret smart seeker. That's what he is. He comes at night. And scholars have debated why he comes at night and why we, it's made such a, a point by John in this scripture. Here's a couple reasons, and you can pick the one you like. He could have been coming to avoid embarrassment. You know what I mean? The ruling class didn't believe in Jesus, and he didn't want to be weird, so he waits till nighttime to come. He could have been coming not to openly support him, because that was going to cost him something. He doesn't want to risk impeachment, or however you could get rid of guys on the royal council besides whacking them. I don't know. He doesn't want to risk that. He, uh, maybe he wants to get a private, honest inquiry that isn't really possible in a huge crowd, you know, on the mount with, you know, 5,000 other people. Maybe he wants a one-on-one -on -one with Jesus, and this is the only time he feels like he can get it. Perhaps he has a full-day runner. He's got a big schedule, and he just can't really fit Jesus in except at night. Or maybe, like us, sometimes your brain gets away from you at night. And that's, that's when you want answers, and that's when you need answers. I don't know which that is. I know which one I think it is. What breadcrumbs do you follow and where does it lead you? Because folks, these days you can pick your trail, you can pick your information source, you can pick your news channel, you can pick the voices you listen to. Who are the voices that lead you and where do they lead you? To what answers? I think one of the reasons that I resonate with Nicodemus so much is that I also am a night seeker. 
It's not that I have trouble sleeping. I'm not, I'm not somebody who can't sleep at night and needs, you know, 14 pills or anything like that. I'm not that kind of person. But if something's on my mind, if something's bothering me, it will interrupt my sleep. I can't, I can't sleep very well if, if things are bothering me because that's when I think about stuff. Everything is heavier for me at night. You know that song that we sing up here sometimes, when the night is holding on to me, God is holding on. I get that in spades. I really get that in spades. I overthink things at night. I misthink things at night. You cannot trust my math at night, right? You cannot trust the deductions I come to. Oh, that's why they did that. That must be, you know what I mean? I question things. I will misassign motive in, in other people's lives. I will do all kinds of things at night because I'm overwhelmed by that in some way. And so I have to seek God in the middle of the night. What do you need in the dark of night? Do you need reassurance? Do you need comfort? Do you look for distractions? Are you looking for answers? See, Jesus doesn't rebuke Nicodemus for coming at night. He doesn't belittle him for that. He doesn't even act like it's a, it's a problem. He doesn't mind staying up. He doesn't act surprised. I think it's significant because even Jesus had his darkest hours in Gethsemane in the middle of the night when his best buds fall asleep on him. Right? Jesus has his darkest night. That's when he's struggling. That's when he needs the angels to come and minister to him. It's in the dark of night. I think Jesus understands night seeking. I don't think it's a surprise that Jacob wrestles with an angel all night long. I think there are, the psalmist wrestles with things all night long. There's nothing wrong with that, right? That is when we're struggling with stuff. He can handle our questions, every single one of them. Because get this, God is on duty 24-7. Did you know he doesn't sleep? Did you know he invented sleep for us? And maybe he did that to kind of, you know, refurbish our bodies, but I kind of think he did it because he needed to time out from us. You know what I'm saying? Our crazy, frantic lives going, and he's like, just take a nap. You know what I mean? You just take a nap for a minute. I got, I got other things to do. I kind of wonder about that if we drive him crazy by the way that we oh, overdo some stuff. So he comes up with the sleep. He created it. He doesn't need it. Because he never slumbers and he never sleeps, Psalm 121. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 16, 7. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. You can figure things out with God in the middle of the night. And then the last and most important thing that I think we have to learn from this particular passage, and I'm sorry I put this at the end where I'm gonna, I don't want to rush through this, is number three, the price tag of the, cost, of the cross. Jesus and God paid that price. The price tag is important. Folks, we are motivated by value. We are motivated by value. We will pay more for something of quality. We may like a good deal, but we recognize craftsmanship. And craftsmanship is nothing more than the essence of somebody, their skill, their time, their whatever they poured into it. That's what you're paying for. But still, it's only worth what somebody will give for it. My home is only worth the current offer that's, on, that's out there. I don't care what Zillow says, it's worth zero until somebody offers me that for it. Now it's worth something, right? There's an exchange that has to happen. That's what that is. So things with inherent personal value are significant. And I believe right here, John is not only explaining that the Messiah is here, he's explaining why 
the Messiah is here. He's explaining why Jesus came. Jesus came because God sent him out of love. That's why he's here. This isn't just a gift from God. It's a sacrifice from God. We call it a gift all the time, but it's a gift to us. It's a sacrifice from his, from his perspective. There's a new song that's out right now that talks about the fact, and we're going to sing it here at the end, so, so be ready. You'll get to enjoy it too. But it talks about the fact that God bankrupted heaven on our behalf. He bankrupted heaven. When we empty out the thing of most value for someone else, it's a sacrifice. Think of it this way. If we truly believed that by emptying out our bank account, seriously, emptying it out, cashing out everything you have, your 401k, everything that you have to your name, every asset you have to your name, if we thought that giving that to God would amount to X number of people surrendering their lives and joining the kingdom of Christ, would we do it? Would we do that? See, that's what God did. He emptied heaven for us. He gave the most, I love the way our pastor says it. He doesn't have anything more to give. He gave it all. He gave it all for us. And can I tell you this? We would do that maybe if it was a sure thing. If you could assure me that 25 people would now be in heaven because I gave up my bank account, I might do that. But there is no guarantee when God sent Jesus to earth, there was no guarantee. We still have the opportunity to go, nah. We still have the opportunity to walk away. It was, not a, it was not sewn up. It's still an opportunity. It's still a gamble. God gambled everything he had for us. It's incredible to think about that. Would we make that personal sacrifice to see the world be reconciled to him? See, Jesus left us with marching orders when he left this earth. And, and while a lot of other things that we care about in this world, feeding the poor, justice, racial reconciliation, world peace, all of the crazy stuff that's going on in, in Europe right now, all of that, all of that stuff is important. But our marching orders are to go into all the world making disciples teaching them and baptizing them. And that's not just a, a lofty corporate mission statement or something for the clergy to do. That's our marching orders. That's what we get to do. See, God sent his son into the world to save the world, save us from our own demise, from our own poor choices, from our own condemnation, from spiritual death, so that we would live through him. John says it again in 1 John 4, 9 through 10 this way. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God paid the price. God paid the price. Now, I want my um, prayer team to stay seated if you haven't heard that already. We're going to do ministry time a little bit differently, but stay seated in case the team comes out. You know, one of my favorite songs from a hymn book is um, this old gospel favorite called Jesus Paid It All. I love that song. And in that, I think we concentrate on the idea of what Jesus paid. Oh, he hurt so bad. It was so hard for him. He was on the cross, and I'm not diminishing that. I am suggesting that God paid it all. From the father's perspective, God paid it all. It cost him his whole family. It cost him 
33 earth years away from Jesus. It costs him three days of absolute separation while Jesus is in the ground. God gave, Jesus submitted. But yet we all want to talk about, listen, folks, it's a free gift to just come to Jesus. It's a free gift. You don't have to pay anything. Yeah, it's free for you. Was it free for God? It's expensive. It's an expensive gift that God, it's the opposite of free because it represents what we're worth to him. It represents what we're worth to him, which makes me think, how lightly do I take the price that God paid for me? How lightly do I take that? See, that's, why, that's what we're remembering when we take communion. These communion stations around the edges of the room, those are available for us. And this is the practice we've had since the day we started the vineyard is any time during worship, if that is a part of your worship, if, you are a, if you've surrendered to Jesus, go and remember. Take, take some bread, take some wine, and remember the body and blood of Jesus. And then on Pulse Sundays, we take communion together as a, as a corporate body. But individually, that's what we're remembering. We're remembering how lightly do I treat that? Because that's when I'm appreciating what God did. I think sometimes I lightly take it by just going, oh, thanks, God. Thanks for that. You know? And by the way, I'm going to pray to you. And can you please help all the people that I personally care about? Could you, could you do that? Because some people that I personally care about are in pain and suffering and grief. And I would really like it if you fixed all their pain and suffering and grief. Because their pain, suffering, and grief causes me pain, suffering, and grief. And so I'm really kind of mm, protecting myself from the misery of knowing that I have children that are out of whack and, and not making good choices and family members and all that and, and, and the things of, and you know what I'm saying? Sometimes it's really self-centered, the things that we're asking of God. And we're like, gimme, gimme, gimme so we can make my life happier and the world will be more peaceful and everything will be great and instead of getting about what we're supposed to be doing. How cavalier are we with God's gift? Are we serious enough to come to him in the middle of the night with the questions with, with the concerns, with the heavy things that are on you, what is heavy enough to wake you up is heavy enough to take to God. It is. Let's come to our, let's come to our feet as they prepare for this last song. We're going to do ministry time a little bit differently. If you've never been to the vineyard before, we usually have our prayer team stand up here and face you, and you can come to them for prayer. But we're going to kind of switch it up this morning. If you are in here this morning and, and you resonate with any of these things I'm about to say, I want to invite you to come forward just right now and face the stage. You don't have to look back at anybody. You don't have to face anybody. Just face the stage. And then our prayer team will maybe come behind you and just touch you on a shoulder and, and pray for you. And they'll fill in and, and do that. You don't have to engage with anybody if you don't want to. If you're surrendering to Jesus for the first time, can I just invite you to tell somebody because we want to celebrate that and, and follow up with you about that. But here's my questions. Are you serious enough to say, God, I believe, but I need a few more dots connected. There's some things that are bothering me that I feel like if I just don't have these things connected, it's messing with my faith. Can you bring that to God this morning? If that's you, come forward for that. Maybe you're someone who says, God, I just need you to show me a little bit more. I know you are God. I know this, that, and the other thing, but I need you to show me a little bit more. Come up and let's pray over that with you. Maybe this morning you're just discouraged and you've just had a, a, a bad decade. <laughs> you know, it's just been a rough while. I'm not even going to 
categorize it in years. Do you know what I love about Moses in the Old Testament? On the, one of the worst days, arguably one of Moses' very worst days, when the children of Israel are acting like hoodlums. They are, they are hooligans, right? They are doing things. They're rejecting his leadership. They're rejecting God. They're doing all kinds of things he didn't ask for. And it, he goes away. He leaves them, and he goes up on the mountain to be with God. And, and I would have been up there going, God, you better fix these, these. He doesn't even go up and complain. He's just like, show me your glory. You know, I need a contrast to this crazy stuff happening down here. Can you just show me your glory? That'll be enough. Maybe your life and the discomfort that you have right now or the angst that you have about what's happening in Eastern Europe or the angst that you have about your bank account or the angst that you're dealing with about anything, you need something brighter than that. Come forward and ask God to show you his glory. Trust me, there will always be more of God for us to know than what we know right now. You never get to the end of that. We'll never get to the end of that on this side of heaven. We're not going to. If you have questions like that this morning, like Nicodemus, discouragement like Moses, or maybe you just realize that God's sacrifice has just become kind of quaint to you and passe and you know all the words and you haven't taken it as seriously as you want to. Folks, Easter's coming. That's when we remember in a big way. And if that's you this morning, as you listen to this song about how God bankrupted heaven, make your way to the front and someone will come and pray for you during this song. Let's pray first. God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for Nicodemus and the fact that John wrote it down for us. God, right now, you are stirring hearts in this room. And so, God, I pray right now that you would give courage to those who need to come forward and receive prayer. They don't even know what about. They don't want to articulate it, and they don't have to. But, God, they need to know that the body of believers is here and that you want to move in their life, that the Holy Spirit wants to touch them through someone else, through someone else's prayer. You want to give them relief today. You want to give them peace today. You want to show them your glory today. Let them come forward, God, and receive that this morning. In Jesus' name.